It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host David Feldman and the rest of the crew. Hello, David. Morning. And the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello. Well, this is a program with a candid whistleblower from the State Department who resigned and a great investigative reporter on what's happening to our civil liberties because of the Israeli conflict. That's right, Ralph. As we record this program, it's been well over 100 days since the state of Israel started their relentless siege on Gaza in response to the attacks on October 7th. This campaign has been enthusiastically supported by the Biden administration, which continues to provide Netanyahu's government with the means to carry out their genocide of the Palestinian people. As taxpayers, our money is funding all of this death and destruction, making us complicit. Our first guest today is former State Department official Josh Paul. Mr. Paul was a member of the Bureau of Political Military Affairs, which he describes as the U.S. government entity most responsible for the transfer of arms to allies, including Israel. In protest, Mr. Paul tendered his resignation 10 days into the conflict, he explained that, quote, this administration's response, and much of Congress as well, is an impulsive reaction built on confirmation bias, political convenience, intellectual bankruptcy, and bureaucratic inertia. That is to say, it is immensely disappointing and entirely unsurprising, unquote. In the second half of the show, we're going to pivot to the second front of the war in Palestine, America's college campuses. We've previously covered Congress's dubious investigation into anti-Semitism on college campuses and the moral panic conflating anti-Zionism or any slight criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. What if we told you that most of this fear-mongering and accusations of anti-Semitism wasn't organic? Instead, it's actually the product of decades of illegal anti-Palestinian espionage, covert action, and blacklisting of Americans within the U.S. by the Israeli government and a network of domestic collaborators. Investigative reporter James Banford will be joining us to explain the, quote, massive operation to spy on and crush pro-Palestinian students throughout the country, to establishing a secret Israeli-run troll farm across the U.S. to harass anyone critical of Israel, to hiring Americans to secretly spy on American students and report back to Israeli intelligence, unquote. As always, somewhere along the line, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, let's talk to a State Department insider who could no longer be part of sending arms to Israel. David? Josh Paul served 11 years in the Bureau of Political Military Affairs at the U.S. Department of State before his resignation on October 17, 2023. Mr. Paul previously worked on security sector reform in both Iraq and the West Bank with additional roles in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, U.S. Army staff, and as a congressional staffer. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Josh Paul. Thank you very much indeed. It's really an honor for me to join you. Thank you very much, Josh. You so far are the only quasi-high official of the State Department to resign in protest. What you read about others resigning as a matter of conscience from the State Department, is there a lot of upset and dissent that reflects your concern that this issue of the Israeli-Hamas 
conflict is not being fully debated and fairly debated in the State Department. Yes, I think there are a lot of people, and I've heard from very many of them, who are immensely frustrated and disappointed and troubled by the stance that the Biden administration is taking, and particularly within the State Department, where people, I think, understand not only the moral failings of our current policy, but also the practical failings and the impact that our current approach is having on our relations across the world and our ability to rally America's allies and partners around the issues that we care about. So I think there are a lot of people who are are very deeply troubled and who are taking actions within their roles to try and address those, including through the formalized dissent channel, where many people have expressed concerns and recommendations to the secretary on a change of course, and as well through more public channels. We've seen public letters. We've seen a vigil outside the White House of executive branch staff. And in the last 24 hours here, as we speak on Wednesday, we saw a day of grieving, a day of mourning in which many public civil servants took part, not including, you know, not going to work as they mourned the losses of the last few months. So I think there is an immense amount of frustration and effort being made to change the course. Unfortunately, it does not seem to be registering yet with the Biden administration. Well, the State Department's original charter back in Ben Franklin days was diplomacy and customs. And it seems to be more a secretary of war than a secretary of state. Well, I think that's right. I mean, to be fair, and in the State Department's defense, and actually, I think in in a structural defense, it is interesting that the United States places control of arms transfers and security assistance within the State Department. That is a different model than most of our allies follow, in which you'll find those functions in the Department of Defense or Ministry of Defense or Ministry of Trade. And there is an advantage to putting them in the State Department so that they can be considered as tools of foreign policy along with other diplomatic tools, such as economic assistance, such as, of course, diplomatic engagement. So there is an advantage there, but of course, there is also inherently by doing so a militarization of foreign policy, particularly when we look at the massive amount of funding that is provided for military assistance. And of course, the way that that, providing that assistance then links us to the actions of our partners, whether we want to be complicit in those actions or not. So I, I think there is a bit to unpick there, but you're right. We have seen increasingly, and particularly since September 11th, a militarization of our foreign policy and an increasing reliance on tools such as arms transfers, such as security cooperation, to pursue diplomatic objectives. And that is a problem. Before we get to that, let's talk about Congress. What do you take of this overwhelming defeat of Bernie Sanders' proposal regarding weapons aid to Israel just now? There were only 11 senators who voted with him, and his proposal on the floor of the Senate was turned down. What's your take on that? So it's obviously very disappointing, but I don't think it's surprising. One of the things that stood out to me several months ago when I resigned was that typically when we are talking about human rights issues connected to arms transfers, Congress is an ally in terms of raising those concerns, in terms of speaking up, holding hearings, pressing for delays while we figure out and understand what is happening. That was not the case in this context. In this context, Congress was pushing as hard, if not harder, than the Biden administration itself to rush arms to Israel in the context of Gaza. So I think there is a blind spot in our foreign policy, including when it comes to Congress's consideration of these issues and of the humanity of the Palestinian people. So it's not surprising. I think you have a lot of people in Congress, first of all, who are uneducated on this issue, frankly, 
or are educated just by one side. Second of all, who are paying a very close attention to what their networks are telling them to do and how they're being told to vote, rather than to what their constituents are telling them to do. And I've heard from many congressional staff who say they are getting calls in favor of a ceasefire in a 10 to 1 ratio from constituents. And yet this is not translating into a member position. So I think that is a, a reason for concern in our democracy. Well, Jim Zogby, the head of the Arab American Institute, gave an address years ago to an Israeli university audience talking about the other anti-Semitism. And by that, he meant that apart from anti-Semitism against Jews, there's a virulent anti-Semitism against Arabs backed by military power and destructive weaponry. What do you think of that? You've served in the Arab world. You've been in Iraq and elsewhere in your career at State Department. Why is anti-Semitism against Arabs viewed as permissible, especially with mass slaughter going on in Gaza at the present time against civilians, 70% of whom are children and women who are dying? Yeah, no, I think that's right. And it is very evident in current statements, including those coming out of this administration and President Biden. You know, on the 100-day anniversary of the October 7th attacks, you know, attacks which were followed by thousands, as you say, of civilian casualties in Gaza, the president's message made no reference to Palestinians. Whenever he or other officials talk at the White House about the events of and since October 7th, you know, they humanize the Israeli suffering quite rightly and talk about individual stories and the suffering that has happened. When it comes to the suffering in Gaza, which is numerically of a, a scope and scale so much larger, it is sort of mentioned in an offhand manner, and we require or we would like to see fewer civilian deaths without any of that sort of storytelling and humanization that accompanies talking about the Israelis. So I, I think there is a blind spot. There has been one, as we know, for many years when it comes to American foreign policy, dating back well before 9-11, dating back to the 90s, to the time of Madeleine Albright, where she was able to sort of dismiss the death of half a million Iraqi children through starvation as a, a necessary part of U.S. policy. So this is a very deep vein, I'm afraid, in our foreign policy. And I think it is one that has actually ultimately harmed us very much indeed, us as a nation, us as America, in the sense that in creating this blind spot, we have also lost a part of our souls and lost a part of our values. And I think it is incumbent on us to turn back to the Arab American community, to the Muslim American community, to find those values, because they are the ones who are currently expressing American values when it comes to ending civilian suffering in Gaza, when it comes to calling for peace. You don't see that in sort of the mainstream America right now. So I think in advancing the bigotries of our society, we've also lost a big part of ourselves. Let's talk about the gross undercount of the fatalities in Gaza. They're still talking about 24,000 fatalities, and they cite the Hamas Health Ministry. But just look at the reality here. Imagine if Philadelphia, which has a million and a half people and is about the size of Gaza geographically, was subjected under siege to no food, no water, no medicine, no electricity, no fuel, and no health care as an official policy, the attacker. And over 33,000 bombs and missiles were dropped on defenseless people in Philadelphia. Would anybody think that 99% of the people in Philadelphia would have still survived after 100 days? Hamas seems to have an interest in lowballing its own fatalities because it doesn't want to be criticized more 
by Gazans for not protecting him at all. What's your view of this undercount, and, and what do you think is the real minimal estimated casualty toll in terms of dead and injured? Yes. And it's not just you who is saying there's an undercount. It's actually the Biden administration as well. Assistant Secretary of State Barbara Leaf, who is the Assistant Secretary of State for Middle East Affairs, or for NEA, as we call it in the State Department, actually testified to Congress in November that she believes that the count being put out by the Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health in Gaza is an undercount. So the Biden administration agrees with you that, that we are not capturing as many deaths as are occurring. In addition to that, as you say, I think and I fear that we are actually just at the very beginning of this humanitarian crisis, that as many as have been killed by Israeli or rather by American bombs, frankly, in the last few months, there could be many times that number who will succumb to disease and starvation in the rest of this year. I don't know that the world is prepared for that. I certainly know that the humanitarian community is not being allowed to prepare for that in terms of their access to Gaza that would be needed to prevent this. So I think we are at the start of a very dark period, unfortunately. It might be uh, added that uh, 80% or more of Gazans have been displaced and they're living exposed to the elements or under tents, mostly in the southern part of this tiny enclave, which is only twice the size of the District of Columbia. Now, let's go to the core of your expertise, Josh Ball. Over the years, there was an embargo on Gaza by Israel, which is considered illegal under the international law. Now, how in the world, with the Israeli technology of surveillance of the Palestinians and an embargo, considered the most advanced technological surveillance by experts in the history of the world, how did Hamas get these weapons and the ammunition ready to use? Where'd they come from? How'd they get through? So, as I understand it, the best analysis coming out of the U.S. is that, for the most part, these are weapons of Iranian origin and sometimes of North Korean origin and elsewhere from around the world. I think it's a very good question of how they got through, and I think it speaks to the question of Israel's siege on Gaza, which, of course, you know, explicitly, at least, was intended to prevent this sort of flow of arms into the Gaza Strip. I think what that tells you at the end of the day is that what you need here is a political solution, because there is no military solution both to Hamas's capabilities and to the ingenuity of, of mankind in being able to build, smuggle, construct, whatever it might be, the arms that they, you know, have to hand. So, you know, I, I think that's the bottom of the of the answer here is that there is no military solution. There is no military capability that can keep 2.3 million people cooped up with no ability and, you know, with no ability to, you know, build an arms cache. I think we need a political solution. Well, before a political solution, some people have spoken of a two-state solution, which Muslim countries have been proposing since 2002 in an open letter, and Israelis have been ignoring it. What do you make of Prime Minister Netanyahu's statements over time, including to his own Likud party in 2019, that the Israeli government is supporting and facilitating the funding of Hamas because Hamas doesn't believe in a two-state solution and can stop the Palestinian Authority from moving in that direction. This is an astounding position, given Netanyahu's recent denunciation of Hamas. It seems like he enabled Hamas over the years. What's your reaction? 
I think that's exactly right. I think he has, and I think Israel has often played Hamas off against the Palestinian Authority, while at the same time undermining the Palestinian Authority in every way it can, by withholding salaries, by you know using the Palestinian Authority to pursue Israeli security objectives rather than Palestinian security objectives. That's a game that we, the United States, have played our part in. So I, I think that there has been, you know, in parallel with, of course, the expansion of settlements, with the continuation of the siege of Gaza, an effort to essentially deconstruct and divide a Palestinian state before one can even be established in order to make it impossible to establish. I think that has been very much at the core of Prime Minister Netanyahu's policy. I think it has blown back on him in some respects. And yet, it is hard to see how we go forward from here politically. Well, let's talk about humanitarian aid here. We've been listening to Joe Biden saying he wants more humanitarian aid, and it's already funded by the U.S., and there are hundreds and hundreds of trucks ready to come in with food, medicine, shelter, and the necessities of life. And the Israelis are letting in anywhere from 50 to 100 trucks, but they can't get to their destination because of the bombing and the broken up roads, and the hospitals are not around operating, most of them, to receive this aid. Is Biden talking with a forked tongue here? I mean, he's shipping all kinds of arms unconditionally, as you know better than most, to the Israelis. Can he turn the screws on him and say, I want six, seven hundred trucks a day going into Gaza, which was the case before October 7th, because people are dying being injured, sick, babies dying without this humanitarian aid, hour by hour. What would you say to the president that he must do right now? Every day, hundreds are dying. No, I think he absolutely could be doing a lot more, and I think he's choosing not to. I think his policy and America's policy remains to prioritize Netanyahu's explicit policy, which is the destruction, quote-unquote, of Hamas over the humanitarian needs of the Palestinian people. You know, it took three months of negotiations with Israel to get them to open the Kerem Shalom crossing into the south of Gaza from Israel. There is still the Erez crossing in the north of Gaza, where there are still many thousands of Palestinians stranded and trying to sort of survive, which Israel has not opened. That's another option. There are also options, for example, you know, I I think there is a, a significant concern that the only option for Palestinian people in Gaza to get humanitarian assistance might be to leave Gaza. If that is the case, of course, not only are we talking about another Nakba, essentially, but, you know, that doesn't have to be the case if they were able to process into, for example, the Negev. That is not something that people are even talking about. So, you know, and that would keep people on the land. So, you know, there are any number of options that President Biden could be pursuing, but the proof that he is not is that he is not using any of the leverage that he has with the government of Israel in order to pursue those options. So he is not making military assistance conditional upon the provision of humanitarian support. He is not making military assistance balanced against, for example, action in the United Nations to call for a ceasefire or to at least get out of the way of those who are calling for a ceasefire in the United Nations. He is simply asking nicely and then saying that he is all out of options. So I think there is a lot more the United States and President Biden could be doing here. My concern is that it just doesn't seem that they particularly want to. You think it's the election? I think it's a number of factors. I think one of them may be the election, but if you look at the electoral math for President Biden, particularly as he hits record low numbers in polling, I don't see the logic there. He is losing a lot of support rather than gaining it through this approach. There are many, many people in this country 
who will not turn out to vote for him as a result of the steps that he has taken in the last few months. And yet, rather than turning around and trying to appeal to those people, he is doubling down. While those, I think, who are, you know, very strongly on the side of Israel, whether it be the Christian evangelical community, whether it be the American religious Zionist community, you know, will go and vote for the Republican. So I don't know what President Biden is getting electorally or politically out of this. I think it is for him a deeply held position. I think he is frozen in his perspectives in the 1970s where they were formed. And of course, the reality on the ground is very different now than it was then. And the politics of Israel, for that matter, are very different now than they were then. So I think that there is, there is you know, just a, an unwillingness on his part to budge due to a, a personally held belief, which is unfortunate. Well, let's look at the extraordinary abdication of the Congress under its constitutional duties. The Congress should be having oversight hearings now. There yes. are no oversight hearings about the position of the White House vis-a-vis -vis the Israeli war in Gaza, neither in the House under the Republicans nor under the Senate. There's no unofficial hearing by Democrats in the Progressive Caucus who would like to see a hearing. There's never been a hearing since 1948 in the U.S. Congress featuring Israeli peace advocates, many of them former generals, mayors, minister of justice, and former heads of security agencies. There was a documentary on the latter a few years ago where the retired people from Shin Bet and Mossad were criticizing the Netanyahu regime vis-a-vis -vis mm -hmm. the Palestinian issue. What's your take in Congress here? It's been said that in the last three months, the pro-Palestinian people in the United States have controlled the streets, but the pro-Netanyahu people in the United States have controlled the suites in Congress <laughs> and executive branch. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And I think you're right that there are a lot of voices, credible voices in, you know, the on the Israeli side, calling out the Netanyahu government for its current approach. Unfortunately, if you look at the polling, they are also in a significant minority right now in Israel, but they are nevertheless important voices. Yeah, I think I think Congress has an important role to play here, that it is abdicating, not only in terms of hearings, not only in terms of, for example, the resolution that Senator Sanders brought to the floor yesterday not only in terms of speaking out more publicly, calling for a ceasefire. You know, it's interesting. I, I have spoken with a number of members of Congress in the last few months, and even for those who haven't publicly called for a ceasefire, many are willing to acknowledge behind closed doors that, yes, actually, they do believe that Israel is committing war crimes, but they will not say it publicly. And that just seems to me such a moral abdication of the purposes for which you were elected. If you know something to be a fact, if you know the U.S. to be complicit in facilitating war crimes, but are unwilling to say it because you are afraid of how your donors might react or how your next election might go. Why are you even in Congress? So I think there is a significant gap there. And, you know, I think it is it is an important note because it is not just Congress where this debate is, is being silenced or where people are being censored or are self-censoring. We're seeing it in the American public, too. I've heard from many lawyers, doctors, engineers, who say, I would like to stand with you, but if I am too vocal, I will lose my job. The end result of all this, when you do not have free debate in society, when you do not have free debate in Congress, when you do not have free debate in government, is that you get bad policy, right? I mean, we know that how autocracies fail, because they do not have free debate and they get bad policies as a result. I think that's happening here, specifically to the context of Israel and Palestine. But it also makes me afraid for the future of our democracy more broadly. 
Because if there is one issue where you cannot speak up on, if there is one issue where you are shouted down and condemned for voicing an opinion on the side of humanitarian issues, there will be other issues, I guarantee you, where the same becomes true. Well, we're going to have, after our interview, James Banford, who's written a book and two articles in The Nation on the organized pressure to suppress dissent on campuses and to call out the students who are supporting the ceasefire and the Palestinian two-state cause by name, by picture, trying to get them to have their job offers rescinded, extremely well organized. And James Bamford, of course, is famous for writing the first book of any kind on the NSA. He has a sterling record of accuracy. So our listeners will hear what he has to say shortly. Would you come out publicly for congressional hearings of prominent Israeli and Palestinian peace advocates who've been at it over the years, but have been blocked from any voice in the U.S. Congress by APAC and other similar lobbies? Don't you think yes. that's the beginning? That's the beginning of providing voices of dissent from Israel before the U.S. Congress? Of, of course. And I would say that if the administration, if President Biden is actually sincere in wanting to do more to press Israel to reduce civilian casualties, the administration should actually support that, as should Congress. Because, you know, that is one of those tools that does not involve cutting off military assistance, does not involve, you know, not backing Israel at the UN, simply involves demonstrations of concern from Congress and therefore gives some amount of added pressure without actually changing anything. So those who in the administration and in Congress who believe that we should be doing more to support, to be concerned about Palestinian lives, about humanitarian suffering, and yet are not willing to take any solid steps, there is no reason whatsoever that they should not support that sort of hearing. Well, the calls, as you say, are pouring into the switchboard in Congress at 10 to 1, demanding a ceasefire, and that President Biden stand up for America's prime interests here, which you've described in your interviews since you left the State Department. But I'm curious about one thing that you have expertise on. Why is the Biden administration sending 2,000-pound bombs to Israel when it hardly used the 2,000-pound bombs in the war in Iraq? For those who don't know about this, 2,000-pound bombs have extraordinary increased devastation on civilians. Can you enlighten us on this? Yes. I mean, of course, we also know from public reporting, including from CNN, Wall Street Journal, New York Times and others, that Israel is using many of these 2,000-pound bombs in an unguided capacity. So that rather than, for example, attaching a precision guidance kit to these, it is simply dropping them on Gaza. As to why the Biden administration is providing these to Israel, the answer is very simple. Israel is asking for them, and no one has the guts to question that. No one has the guts to say no. This is very much part of what the dynamic that I saw before leaving government, that people were, you know, Israel was coming in and making these extensive, expansive requests for weapons, many of which were not applicable in the context of Gaza. And yet no one was willing to say, let's talk about this. This doesn't make sense. How are you going to use this? Do Israelis actually pay for these weapons or is that part of the $4 billion that comes every year from the U.S. to Israel? I think for many of the current arms transfers, that is yet to be determined. We do provide Israel, as you say, just under $4 billion a year in grant military assistance. That's about 20% of the Israeli defense budget. They do spend their own money as well procuring arms from the U.S. And of course, President Biden's supplemental request would provide them with several billion dollars more in military grant assistance. 
So if that were to not pass, I suspect that Israel would have to spend its own money on these. But in the meantime, I think we can assume that a lot of this is courtesy of the U.S. taxpayer. Have you spoken out against this $14.3 billion request from Biden to the Congress to send aid to Israel tied up in a bill for military aid to Ukraine and Taiwan? Have you spoken out publicly against this? It's been called the genocide tax that outraged so many people to yes, further I, kill yeah. more innocents. Yes, I have. And I have some specific concerns beyond the simple provision of further funding, which I think we should all question. There are also provisions, new authorities in the president's request that would expand the scope and the speed of arms transfers while reducing congressional oversight. I think, you know, as, as little as Congress has done on this issue set, we should be concerned about that as Americans. Congress is our overseer of the executive branch and reductions in that transparency, particularly while expanding the capability, expediting the capability to provide arms into this context and into this conflict is problematic and should be so just simply, again, from a perspective of concern about American democracy. What's interesting is there aren't even any public hearings on this scheduled. Congress has aborted its public hearing function, and it's given over the years the power to declare war to the presidency under very vague standards. When Congress has the exclusive power, as James Madison pointed out in the Constitution, to declare war, there are all kinds of violations here of law. It seems like the U.S. and empire and the micro-empire of Israel don't feel like they have to adhere to any international laws, the Geneva Conventions, the Genocide Convention as well. What's your view of the State Department not ever raising these issues, not saying to the White House, I think you should go to Congress on this, given our interpretation by the legal advisor of the U.S. Constitution? So let me first say that I have an immense amount of respect for the State Department lawyers. They are, you know, really hardworking, thoughtful, insightful people. I think the problem is that for any legal team within government, any legal institution within government, within the executive branch, their job often becomes to interpret the law as broadly as possible in favor of the presidency. And in many of these cases, what we have here is a problem of how the executive branch interprets the law so that it does not bind the hands of the president. And that leads to all sorts of difficult consequences when it comes to, for example, the application of human rights vetting that is in law under the Leahy laws, went for Israel or for other countries for that matter, when it comes to determining whether a country is engaged in a continuous practice of gross human rights abuses. So these are all sorts of questions of interpretation where the problem is that the lawyers in the department and across government tend to say, what is the narrowest interpretation that will give the president the broadest scope? And the problem here is that you then create a massive accountability gap, that you have an absence of ability to bind the executive to both the American laws or, for that matter, to international law, which, of course, is much less binding and much more consensus-based, consensus which is then further advanced when you have courts that defer deeply to the executive on a lot of these issues, such as questions of foreign policy, questions of defense policy. So there is really very few hooks in the current structure that provide a means of accountability, a means of holding people to account, a means of questioning decisions. This is in Congress's hands to fix. Congress has the ability to write stronger laws, to write laws that have actual hooks, that have actual triggers that bring them into effect. So I, I would throw that back into Congress's court. But for now, that's where we are. Do you see a wider war occurring? The papers are full of projections that this war is widening. It may involve neighboring countries. It may involve Iran. 
Biden keeps saying that he's working vigorously to make sure that doesn't happen. But the U.S. has bombed in Syria recently and Iraq and Red Sea. And what's your view here? Is it going to go out of control? Look, I hope not. But the answer is the longer the conflict in Gaza continues, the greater the risks of that sort of escalation become. And that is another reason why it should be in the U.S. interest to press Israel to end its bombardment of Gaza, to end its invasion of Gaza as quickly as possible. Because the longer this lasts, the more the risks increase. Well, let's go to Steve and David and Hannah. They want to ask you a couple of questions or make a comment. Steve? Josh, the stated goal of the Netanyahu government is to eliminate Hamas. My question is, is that even possible? It's not like they're wearing uniforms. It's a small fundamentalist uh, philosophy. It's an idea. Is that really, or is that just PR that they can eliminate Hamas? So I don't know what the thinking was at the start of this operation on the part of the government of Israel, but it is not a feasible goal, right? They might be able to significantly and for a significant amount of time degrade the military capabilities of Hamas. In fact, I'm sure they've already done that. But you cannot go to war against a political movement and you cannot go to war against an ideology. This is a political problem that requires a political solution. And I think this really creates some, some significant challenges when you start wondering about what comes in the post-conflict space. You know, if we are talking about Palestinian self-determination, that there is inevitably going to be some support for Hamas, given particularly the events of the last three months and how Hamas looks compared to the fecklessness, frankly, of the Palestinian Authority. So I don't know how you go forward from here, from this situation that is being created, with either a, a certainly no military solution or a political solution that is workable for people. But the short answer to your question is, is no. What I fear will happen is that there will not be a ceasefire, that Israel will keep this an open-ended conflict and feel free to sort of, you know, strike at whoever it says is Hamas or Hamas-linked. Of course, Israel has painted a very broad swath, including through the comments of its president, who has said it is a whole nation that is at fault here or that is involved here. But even, you know, assuming that that is not sort of, you know, the case, that I think we will still see Israel feeling that it has a free hand to bomb, to strike Gaza, Palestinians in the West Bank, of course, which we've seen increasingly in the last few weeks, for years to come. And that is just a recipe for a continued humanitarian and political disaster. David? What would happen if we had a real isolationist government here in the United States that said, no more foreign aid for Israel, no cooperation on Iron Dome, we're just protecting our own interests, to basically neglect, abandon Israel? First of all, let me just say, I'm not personally advocating for a, a, an isolationist approach writ large by the US. I think we do have an important play, a role to play in the world. I wish we played it better and with more humanity. But when it comes to Israel's ability to stand alone, I think would succeed. It has. So let's talk about the defense sector. We provide Israel with $3.3 billion a year in foreign military financing. Israel is allowed to use a significant portion of that on its own defense industrial base. And over the years, over the tens of billions of dollars, what that means is that Israel is now actually a top exporter of weapons. So, you know, Israel has a strong defense industrial base. Israel has the means to support the military operations it wants to do if it is willing to pay the cost in terms of raising taxes, if it is willing to, you know, take those sorts of approaches. And of course, Israel also has burgeoning partnerships with many countries in the region including, of course, through the Trump administration's Abram Accords, which connected it with the United Arab Emirates, with Morocco, with others. 
So I do not think that Israel is entirely dependent on the United States in the way that it would have been 20 or 30 years ago. That said, a complete cutoff now or significant conditioning of our arms would force Israel to make some much tougher decisions about where its actual defense requirements lie and where it actually wants to use the weaponry that it has. Anna? You've served under different presidents. Why now? What about this situation just snapped snapped it for you? Yeah, thank you. So I think it was, it was a, two really main factors, one of which was the scale and the scope of the Israeli operations in Gaza, which we have seen in you know, just over three months now, have more destruction of houses than the firebombing of, De- of Dresden, have killed more journalists than in any conflict since World War II, have killed more children in three months than have died in Ukraine in two years. And of course, this is all being done with our bombs, with our money, with our weaponry, with our support. So that was the first factor, was just you know, the sense that we were a part of, of this absolute horror that is unfolding on the ground. And the second, of course, is this lack of debate and the sense that, yes, you're absolutely right. I've been involved in many morally perilous, you might even say morally torturous decisions in the State Department, in the security assistance, in the arms transfer business, with many countries, of course, that the United States has relationships with that are autocracies or that you are human rights abusers. In all of those previous situations, I and others in the department have been able to raise concerns and had those concerns addressed in some way or form in a way that made me feel that I was doing more good by being there than I would be able to do if I was not there. The difference here, again, in addition to the scale of what is happening, was that there was no space whatsoever for that sort of raising of concerns, for those questions of how do we mitigate some of these outcomes? How do we stop some of these or reduce some of these civilian casualties? Simply this rush to arm. And given that lack of space, many people who I'm talking to now in government who are thinking about resigning raise the question of, well, if I'm not there, who will be doing my job? Will it be someone who is going to care about the issues I care about? Or will it be someone who is just going to rush forward on whatever they're told to do? In my situation, it didn't make any difference who was going to be doing the job because this was the policy and there was no space to address, debate or raise concerns about it. Well, we've come to the end of our interview. Is there anything you want to say that we haven't asked you about? And has the media treated you well and given you a voice? So I think I have been fortunate in that respect, you know, at a time when there is a lot of censorship around this issue to have been given a a voice by the media. And I think part of the reason for that is what I look like, right? I think, you know, I am a middle-aged white guy who is therefore able to say things and to speak about truth that many people who do not look like me would be shouted down for. So I think it's important, and I, I do want to say to many of your listeners, that if you are in a situation like me where you have privilege, it is very important to use that privilege for good. That is what enables others to speak up and creates the space in which policy change can actually happen by building that sort of critical mass and momentum but it needs to be you know, enabled to some extent by those of us who are in a position to do so. Any recommendations to our listeners as to what they should do as citizens right now? Keep speaking up. And that involves both speaking to members of Congress as well as members of you know, local government. There have been a number of efforts. For example, Ferguson, Missouri, recently passed in its council a ceasefire resolution, one of few city councils around the country that has done so. And that matters. And then, of course, you know, building bridges with local communities speaking to local media, writing letters to the newspaper, and then ultimately organizing on a broader scale. And I think that's something many of us are looking at and sort of trying to figure out how we do to harness this energy and to move things forward in the longer term. Well, thank you very much for the time you've given us and the insights and the profile of courage that you've exhibited. 
by resigning in protest as a matter of conscience, Josh Paul. And we wish you good luck and the best in terms of communicating more and more why you left the State Department in this turbulent time of massive destruction in Gaza. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. We've been speaking with Josh Paul. We will link to his work at RalphNaderRadioHour.com. Up next, we'll uncover the vast espionage network that aims to stifle dissent on college campuses. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your corporate crime reporter morning minute for Friday, January 19, 2024. I'm Russell Mokhyber. eBay will pay a $3 million criminal penalty for an August 2019 harassment and intimidation campaign targeting a Massachusetts couple in retaliation for their online coverage of eBay and for its obstruction of the investigation that followed. eBay executed a harassment campaign intended to intimidate the victims and to change the content of the newsletter's reporting. The campaign included sending anonymous and disturbing deliveries to the couple's home, including a book on surviving the death of a spouse, a bloody pig mask, a fetal pig, and a funeral wreath, and live insects sending private Twitter messages and public tweets criticizing the newsletter's content and threatening to visit the couple at their home in Natick, Massachusetts. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Wire. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Hannah and Ralph. Our government has spent a lot of time, money, and energy resisting Russian and Chinese spy operations. But what do we do when the spying is being done by our ally? In this case, Israel. David? James Bamford is a best-selling author, Emmy-nominated filmmaker for PBS, award-winning investigative producer for ABC News, and winner of the National Magazine Award for reporting for his writing in Rolling Stone on the war in Iraq. He is the author of the first book ever written on the NSA, as well as other books, including Spy Fail, Foreign Spies, Moles, Saboteurs, and the Collapse of America's counterintelligence. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, James Bamford. Great. Thanks for having me on your show. Appreciate it. James Bamford, for years, has been one of the most proficient, accurate, important investigative reporters and authors in our country. He wrote the first length report on the secretive, gigantic national security agency known as the NSA, which doesn't even have a congressional charter. He has had a sterling record of accuracy, and he has published two articles recently in The Nation magazine. One of them is titled, Israel's War on American Student Activists. For years, the Israeli on-campus coalition, a little-known organization with links to Israeli intelligence, has used student informants to spy on pro-Palestinian campus groups. And then in the second article, he goes into more detail on how organized this is, who's paying for it in the U.S., and its connections to similar groups in Israel. What's your thesis here? Well, the thesis is that Israel's been doing a lot of spying, covert operations, toll farms, doxing, all kinds of things in the United States for not just years, but decades, and the FBI never does anything about it. I mean, they put a agent, a secret agent, in the Trump campaign. The FBI went after Russia, but it never went after Israel. So there's all these, that was pretty much one of the key themes of, of the book I wrote, Spy Fail, was the fact that 
these spies come over here, especially Israel, and nothing happens. The FBI, with regard to Israel, turns its eyes away and, and nobody gets arrested and it just goes on and on. And do you think some of these groups should be filing under the Foreign Agents Registration Act of the U.S. Treasury? Tell us about that. Well, I think some of these groups should be arrested for being agents of a foreign government. Yeah. I mean, if you're an American and you're contributing money and support to a clandestine foreign operation, clandestine foreign agency of a foreign government, then uh, that's pretty much the definition of being an agent of a foreign government. So, you know, the FBI has gone after the Senator Menendez from New Jersey for his connections to Qatar and Egypt, and it went after the mayor of, of New York for foreign connections, but it's never gone after anybody for foreign connections to Israel. And that's where really most of these foreign connections are. Tell us what happened in Harvard University when the Harvard-Palestine Solidarity Committee issued a public letter with students signing on, as students have done throughout the years on civil rights, pro-peace, closing the Vietnam War, Iraq War, and so forth. But this time, something different happened. Can you explain? Yeah, this time there was a huge action against them. Uh, there was a doxing truck that showed up at Harvard, a truck that had electric signs on the sides of the truck that listed the names and addresses and detailed information about the signers of it, and then went to the houses of some of these people, the, the, the truck. So the whole idea was to dox them, to sort of intimidate them, to show that who they are and, and, and cause havoc in their life. So that was one of the things they did. The other thing is that there's a very secretive group or very secretive organization known as Canary Mission. And what that is, is an organization that creates a blacklist that is very, it goes all over the internet. And people's names, pictures, bio information goes on there. And the people are derided for what they've said against Israel, basically. So they're called anti-Semitic and different things like that. And again, to discourage these people from criticizing what's happening in Israel, particularly the war in Gaza. So, so these are the acts to intimidate the people who signed the, the letter. And this is a very well-funded collection of organizations. Can you go into that in your article? One of the participants revealed that the budget for one year was $9 million. Well, it gets a lot of money, and it's a lot of money that comes from U.S. supporters. Uh, Canary Mission, for example. Uh, contributors are secret, largely. They don't have to declare who they are because of a mistake on a tax form at one point. It was discovered that one of the major contributors was Sanford Diller, who was a very wealthy Californian, and he donated $100,000 to the front organization for Canary Mission in Israel. And the way it works is he would donate it to a uh, Jewish foundation. The foundation would then donate the money to a, another, basically a front company in, in uh, New York. And the reason for that is that way he gets a tax deduction on it. If the money went right to Israel, he wouldn't get any tax deduction. So he sends it, they send it through this sort of front company, the Central Fund for Israel in New York. And then it goes to the front in Israel, which turns out to be uh, just an 
old building with a padlock on it. It's not really a, an organization. And then it's run someplace else in Israel. It was tracked down to a, it was a rabbi that was in, in charge of it at one point. So it's all this mysterious money that goes to front companies and it's hidden. And yet the U.S. government has plenty of power to stop these kind of things, but it doesn't. And it just lets it go on and on. So you get people that are at Harvard or any other school, and it doesn't even have to be a school and it doesn't have to be a student. There are professors and there's people working for companies. They get put on this blacklist, the Canary Mission List, and their job opportunities are extremely limited because if anybody goes for a job and they, their employer looks on the internet, one of the first things they'll see is that their name is on this blacklist where they're called a variety of names, basically, for doing something that's basically honorable. Tell us about the experience that Tony Kleinfeld reported on in 2016 in an expose by Al Jazeera. Well, Tony Kleinfeld was, he was Jewish, he was British, and he worked for the Al Jazeera television network as an undercover reporter. And they sent him to, the, to Washington, basically, to do this undercover report on the influence of the pro-Israeli lobby in the Washington area. And so he uncovered a great deal of information because he was posing as a pro-Israeli activist. So one of the things he discovered was that there was this organization called Israel On-Campus Coalition. It's a very sort of secretive organization in Washington. And what it does is it's a very highly tech organization that spies on students all over the country. They use a lot of technology. They have human spies that pass on information about what's going on on campuses, and they compile it all. And when Tony Kleinfeld interviewed the head of the organization and other top officials there, they told him that they send it off to Israeli intelligence and then they get instructions from Israeli intelligence. Again, all this is, makes them an agent of a foreign power, basically. I mean, if you're passing information, especially confidentially, to a foreign government and you're taking instructions from them, then that's the essence of being an, an agent. And Kleinfeld's exchanges were on videotapes. This isn't hearsay. Yeah, I mean, anybody could go to the YouTube and watch the video, see what these people are saying in their own words to Kleinfeld. Another person he interviewed was this a woman. She was a former student at uh, University of California, I think Davis in California. And she went to work for APAC. She was an, sort of a secret recruiter for APAC. And then after that, she got hired by the Israeli embassy, and she's fully American. She's just an American. And they used her as a spy, basically, to spy on what was going on on campuses. She, working from the embassy, she would use phony names and so forth and try to get information on people on different campuses across the country. And then she would take that information, pass it on to her boss at the embassy, and that would go to Israeli intelligence, and then she would get feedback from Israeli intelligence. What is ICC and its war room-like command center? Well, the ICC is the Israel on-campus coalition. It's a war room set up to surveil students all over the, the country. I don't mean by placing hidden microphones, but by reading everything that's online, all the 
comments, every uh, email, the open emails and so forth, whether they're doing anything clandestinely in terms of accessing data, I don't know, but they're picking up all the information, analyzing it and passing it on to Israel. You say that they monitor online conversations in real time from more than 650 million social media sources, including Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, blogs, and other online communities. And this has grown with such a large budget that they paid over a million dollars to what you called, quote, a high-powered Washington political consulting firm, FPI, to promote social media posts attacking students who supported Palestinian rights, end quote. Some of this information you say in your article, quote, flows to the Anti-Defamation League, end quote. ADL is not supposed to be involved in such matters. What's the story here? ADL has been involved in a lot of such matters. I mean, it has a record of being uh, arrested for espionage, been accused and, and charged, basically, with using spies in the United States, the undercover people, to pick up information. There was a case in California in the 90s where that happened. Uh, it's actually a topic I'm currently writing about. Yeah, so it's not surprising that the Israeli on-campus coalition would work alongside and help the ADL, or that the ADL would uh, get information from the ICC. Well, you're critical of the FBI, which has taken a pass here. They're not investigating, they're not enforcing the law. They don't have any such inhibitions against Islamic American groups. You spoke to some people who retired from the FBI, and they were a bit more candid. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was the point I was just trying to make there, was that it's not really the agent level or the street agent level. I know a lot of FBI agents. I've dealt with FBI all my life. So I've interviewed a lot of agents. And on the street level, they'd like to, that's why they joined the FBI, to arrest people and catch people doing crimes. The problem is, once it starts working its way up, I interviewed the former head of counterintelligence for the FBI. Didn't want his name mentioned, but I asked him about this whole thing. Why is there no investigations going on? And he basically said, there are investigations going on. We have investigated. The problem is once they send it up to the Justice Department, nothing happens. I mean, the FBI can't do anything. All the FBI can do is recommend that action be taken. The Justice Department has to do the prosecution. And when when it gets up to the Justice Department, nothing happens. And that's because the Justice Department is political organization, basically, with, you know, the White House not wanting to create a issue that might create a, a loss of votes during an election. And if you start arresting Israelis and bringing pro-Israeli groups into court, that's not going to win you a lot of votes with a lot of the people who are pro-Israeli supporters. Well, we're out of time. Thank you very much, James Banford. Again, you have broached the frontiers of the public's right to know about what's going on in government and its related connections, wherever they may lead you. Thanks for having me on your show. It's a great platform to be on. So thanks again. We've been speaking with James Bamford. We will link to his extensive body of work on this subject at RalphNaderRadioHour.com. I want to thank our guests again, Josh Paul and James Bamford. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show for you podcast listeners. Stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, featuring Francesco DeSantis with In Case You Haven't Heard. 
A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, you can get it free by going to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. The American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to tortmuseum.org to explore the exhibits. Take a virtual tour and learn about iconic tort cases from history. We have a new issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen. It's out now to order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight. Go to CapitolHillCitizen.com. And remember, don't forget to continue the conversation after each show. Go to the comments section at RalphNaderRadioHour.com and post a comment or question on this week's episode. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, where our guests will be Stephanie Fox from Jewish Voice for Peace. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. It's been quite a program. Profiles and Courage. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to the wrap-up. First, Ralph has a couple of additional questions for Josh Paul. Well, the savagery of some of these senators' statements is really amazing. After October 7th, Senator Tom Cotton said, in regard to the Israeli assault after the Hamas assault, that he wouldn't mind if... The Israelis made the rubble bounce in Gaza. And Lindsey Graham, Senator of South Carolina, Republican, has similarly talked about the mass homicidal efforts that he supports. Why do they have to go this far? Look, I think there's been a rot in our politics for many years in terms of what sort of dehumanizing language can we can be used by our politicians and supported by our citizenry to a great extent, right? And we saw the apotheosis of that, frankly, under the last administration, under Donald Trump. And it is still a strong vein in our politics when it comes to how we talk about other human beings. I think that's you know not only unfortunate, but I think it does us ultimately a deep disservice in terms of how the rest of the world views us, and perhaps rightly so. I want to ask you, Josh Paul, in your years at the State Department working on decisions as to which countries should receive our arms shipments, how can you explain the complete collapse of the technological defenses on October 7th of the Israelis, the defense in depth, the intelligence information, they have spies and informants all over Gaza, and the women in the Israeli military who are assigned to be the spotters warning Netanyahu that there is activity before October 7th. Is it credible to explain this simply as a slumbering collapse of this varied matrix of unsurpassed Israeli defenses on the border with Gaza? Or is there another explanation? So I I think the starting point has to be massive negligence, massive complacency, and massive miscalculation by Israel. You know, there are obviously many theories out there that go well beyond that. But I think I, I would start with those questions and then let the investigations unfold. Well, they're not going to investigate until the war is over, according to the coalition that Netanyahu has cobbled together that controls the Knesset and the Israeli government. 
So isn't this something that the U.S. has to take an interest in? Yeah, and I, I think the U.S. probably is conducting its own assessments of exactly what happened. Certainly those were underway at the time I left government, but I'm unable to speak to intelligence matters. Josh Paul, a quick question. The Israeli military bombardment has also killed over 135 United Nations staff. They've blown up schools, UN relief centers, health centers. Why isn't the State Department taking a stronger stand on this part of the bombardment with its presence at the United Nations? Yeah, I, I wish I had an answer for you other than that. The official U.S. policy remains that we support Israel's operations in Gaza. And, you know, I mean, when you look at the statements the department puts out, when it's asked about these things point blank in daily press briefings by members of the media who raise concerns about their colleagues who are being killed, the lack of recognition of those atrocities, the lack of recognition of humanity is simply stunning. It is as if a vice has been lowered around the State Department's sort of moral thinking and ability to express any sort of moral thought when it comes to what is happening in Gaza in favor of allowing Israel to continue its operation. And now James Bamford goes into more detail about how the state of Israel suppresses anti-Israeli sentiment on college campuses, starting with Ralph asking about the PR firm known as FPI. What is FPI? That's just a political consulting firm here in Washington. They just hired them to do this. Anybody could hire them to, you know, do propaganda or promotion or whatever. So the point was that this organization is very little known to anybody, and its main purpose is to find out what students are doing and then take action against them. What he said was that, well, at one point he said, we use this information to crush them. And crush them means the students taking action against them. And they could take all kinds of actions against the students once they find out what they're doing. They could dox them. They could put them on blacklist. They could do all kinds of things to discourage them from continuing their anti-Israeli activities, whether it's protesting or giving speeches or writing or whatever they're doing. Well, you mentioned that Jonathan Greenblatt, who is the executive director of the Anti-Defamation League, called these students, quote, radical actors indisputably and unapologetically regulating dehumanized Jews end quote. That was in 2022. And he pointed the finger to Jewish Voice for Peace, along with Students for Justice in Palestine. It seems like the assault on American civil liberties, which is being imported from that conflict in the Middle East, is not distinguishing the validity of any of the protests. How effective has this intimidation been, James Banford? Are they effective in discouraging students and faculty from signing on petitions, joining marches in cities around the country. How effective is all this organized technology and pressure and doxing been? Well, it's been very effective. I mean, you could just see in the last month or so, presidents of two uh, universities have resigned. They had congressional hearings on this, sort of McCarthyistic hearings on this. And a lot of this, the problem is you're, they're talking about anti-Semitism, but in reality, what's going on is anti-Israelism. I mean, they're, they're against a country, not a, not a religion. I mean, you could be against Italy without being against Catholicism. So that's the idea, is to commingle those two ideas and then use those to accuse people of being anti-Semitic. 
And that's the problem, trying to separate anti-Semitism from Zionism or anti-Israeli policies and so forth. And, and it's very difficult a lot of times for people to separate those. And it's very easy for the people that are going after these groups to commingle those two thoughts. Well, you mentioned that these groups have focused on faculty as well. And you have a case of a professor at the University of California, Berkeley. You want to discuss that? Well, there were several cases involving people at University of California and Berkeley. For example, one of the things that the Israeli, one of the covert operations that Israel formed in the United States was a thing called Project Butterfly. There was a group in, in Israel that came to the United States. A lot of it was funded by people in the United States. And they set up a covert operation to go after people that they suspected were against Israel. And a lot of these were Palestinians, and a lot of them were academics. So one of the people was at University of California, Berkeley. And they went around and they put posters on all his neighbor's windows on their cars uh, saying that this professor is a terrorist and so forth. And they actually wrote up these reports that eventually became public that were going back to Israel, saying, here's what we did. We launched this operation in the United States. We attacked these many people. We did all these things. And again, nothing ever happened to these people. So there's been a lot of professors in California that have been attacked in a variety of ways, and that was one of them. Well, you also know something interesting, that these people tried to enlist the support of the Jewish Federation of North America and the Jewish Council on Public Affairs. And the enlistment was from a ministry in Israel. And these two groups turned them down flatly. Why did they do that? Well, they did that because they didn't want to be charged with being an agent of a foreign government, which is the problem that a lot of other groups didn't turn them down and are acting as agents of a foreign government. And yet nothing is done to them by the FBI. And that was the key theme of that area that I was writing about is the fact that there are these groups that are acting as agents of a foreign government, and nothing is happening to them. They're supposed to register as being an agent of a foreign government. They don't do that. And those two organizations I wrote about are two that didn't. They, they were afraid of that happening, of being charged. So that's the problem here. You have these organizations that are coming here from Israel, and they're connected to the Israeli government. And they're trying to get Americans to support them with money and active support. You know, it's, it's crazy that uh, we're allowing that to go. Well, why is it that the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, AP, they've done great investigative reporting on very sensitive issues in the past. Why haven't they picked up on this? They don't seem to be reporting anywhere near the depth that you have uncovered here. Well, no, not at all. The information here is, uh, is out there. Tony Kleinfeld's video is out there. They didn't report on that. They didn't report on Canary Mission. They haven't reported on numerous other things. The New Yorker, at least, uh, reported on Project Butterfly and that covert operation, but none of the New York Times or the Washington Post ever reported on it. So there's this news blackout when it comes to Israel, which is really the reason I decided to put about 25% of my book focus on that and why I focused on thus far five articles with the nation on, on these topics. So, you know, when I thought nobody was writing about NSA, I decided to write about NSA and nobody's writing about the issue of Israel's activities within the United States. I decided to write about that. 
And they go after even Jewish students on campus who are sensitive to Palestinian rights. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, they go out. They don't really make any difference between Jewish students and non-Jewish students if you're part of a group that's going against Israeli policy. You're a target, and that's that's the thinking. So Jewish East, which is obviously all Jews, they're one of the key targets of the Israeli intelligence and a lot of these pro-Israeli organizations uh, like Canary Mission and so forth. Well, tell us about this Columbia University Law School professor, Catherine Frankie, when she traveled to Israel. There's quite a few people that uh, are professors and students and so forth that go back to Israel because that's where their family is or they have relatives there and so forth. And she was one of them. I'm not sure which, which one she was, but there were two professors that I mentioned. One of the professors went over there, and as soon as she landed, they checked her name against this list, and she saw that among the things they were checking her name on was the Canary Mission list. So once that happened, this professor was put in detention and then sent back to the United States. They wouldn't let her in. And a similar thing happened to another, um, I think the other one was a student. So those are just two I mentioned, but it happened to, to numerous people. The, the idea being that the Israeli government was using Canary Mission as a tool to eliminate people from coming into Israel, even if they have family there, even if they were citizens of Israel. Not if necessarily if they were citizens, they probably could come in, but if they were Americans going to visit family, they wouldn't be let in or they'd be sent back because they were on Canary Mission. So that's that's where the the government and the organization comes into play, where you have a, a very secretive organization creating this blacklist and putting all these people on there that have done nothing illegal. And then you have the Israeli government using that list to do things that are detrimental to American citizens, basically putting you in detention until you can be thrown out of the country. There are no members of Congress standing up for American citizens here. There's supposed to be several dozen members who are keen on protecting civil liberties, freedom of speech, dissent. Are there, well, is there anything yeah. going on? There's a few. Yeah, obviously there's a few that are involved in some of these things, not necessarily Canary Mission, although I don't know what's going on in their office. But the problem is it's, it's few don't really make any difference. It's you need a majority and you need a, at least a plurality and, and you don't have anywhere near that. It goes the opposite direction. It's all towards helping Israel any way they can and turning their eyes on anything bad that Israel does in the United States. It's been going on for years. Again, that's one of the reasons I decided to write about this because no action has ever been taken against these groups and it just goes on and on and on. Congress. You think these groups are behind the Elise Stefanik interrogation of the three presidents of MIT, Harvard, and University of Pennsylvania that got so much worldwide coverage and resulted in the resignations of the president of University of Pennsylvania and Harvard? Well, these groups are constantly pressuring universities and professors and academics to avoid criticism of Israel, for example, or you know, commingling criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. So there was a huge amount of that that went into it. You know, I'm not in Congress and I don't have access to their documents. I don't know what they were reading or who they talked to, but that's the whole idea. These are propaganda organizations, they're pressure organizations, 
And who better to pressure than uh, members of Congress? I mean, these members of Congress get a huge amount of money from these pro-Israeli groups. President Biden was the number one receiver of pro-Israeli money when he was in Congress, over $4 million. So these are people that have a financial stake and a political stake in doing whatever the pro-Israeli groups want. Well, where is this going to go? It seems to be getting worse and worse, especially after October 7th. How far is this intimidation, spying, doxing, disrupting employment opportunities, dealing with faculty and students? Where do you see it going in the next two, three, four years? I just see it increasing. I don't see anybody out there trying to decrease it. And and as I've been working on this, it's just been increasing every year. So if there's no pushback from law enforcement or the Justice Department or Congress or the White House, you know, what's the incentive for decreasing it? And as the war goes on, there's more incentive to increase the pressure to help Israel or keep people from criticizing Israel and so forth. So I don't see it decreasing unless action is taken. I mean, I'm certainly glad that you're giving me a platform to talk about it here. But it needs to have people in Congress that are actually, you know, doing proactive things to stop these. And it needs to have the FBI actually go after people who are acting as agents of the Israeli government in the United States. Are you getting interviewed by the so-called mainstream press on this? Not really. I've, I've done quite a few interviews, but I wouldn't say mainstream. I mean, I've been a mainstream journalist my entire life. I was the investigative producer for ABC, uh, World News Tonight for 10 years, written for every aspect of the New York Times and the Washington Post. I was profiled in the New Yorker magazine and so forth. So, I mean, there's a completely mainstream, numerous best-selling books. But this is one topic that I can never get anybody to really, you know, light a fire under anybody about. So, you know, it's, it's ignored. Again, that's the reason I decided to write about it. Do you see any opposition rising from groups like American Association of University Professors or national student groups? Well, a lot of student groups are certainly trying to take action against this. There have been numerous attempts by student groups to get universities to crack down on Canary Mission, for example, but there hasn't been any. And if there is an attempt to crack down on Israeli on-campus coalition, Canary Mission, or a lot of these other organizations that are sort of propaganda and pro-Israel and pressure groups. Nothing seems to be done because none of them are decreasing. The Israeli on-campus coalitions said their income or their funding had, I don't know, doubled, tripled or whatever in the last couple of years. So, and they're buying, you know, millions and millions more dollars worth of technology to do their What about the it's increasing? James Manford, what about the faculty unions around the country and the American Association of University Professors, which in the past has spoken up against assaults, McCarthy type type assaults on civil liberties on campus? Well, they they may. I mean, I I don't have enough opportunity to see what all these groups are are doing, all the academic or professor groups or whatever. Has any litigation been filed by any of the no, and People that's who are under. I haven't seen anybody file any litigation against the Canary Mission. You know, it's just a organization that uh, keeps growing and 
keeps doxing people and nothing is done about it because the, I think there's an enormous fear that if you go after an organization like Canary Mission, they're going to go after you. So there's a, a big disincentive to go after them to some degree. A lot of this and other information is contained in your latest book. You want to tell us about that briefly? Well, the, my latest book is Spy Fail. It, it looks at the failure of U.S. counterintelligence to arrest spies. And we've been talking about one aspect of it. In my book, I talk a, a great deal about Israel, but I also go into other countries, uh, Russia, China, North Korea, and so forth, how spies from those countries managed to get away with a great deal of espionage in the United States and never got caught. The FBI had somebody from Russia that infiltrated became a mole in the FBI for about 20 years, Robert Hansen. And within a week of him being arrested, the Chinese intelligence service managed to get a mole into the FBI who stayed there for about 10 years. And it was so blatant, he would take the, the material. He was posted with the FBI in Honolulu, and he would take the material, fly to China, give it to them, and fly back. And for 10 years, nobody ever caught him. So the book looks at these failures of counterintelligence from a lot of different countries, not just Israel. The title again? It's Spy Fail, S-P-Y-F-A-I-L. Finally, Steve, David, and Hannah get in on the action. James, do we have this issue with any of other our close allies, say the UK or Germany or Japan, where they have spies recruiting Americans to act as foreign agents to their policies, or is it just mainly Israel? Oh, no, it's just, as far as I know, it's among allies, it's just Israel. I mean, you have foreign countries, obviously, that have spies in the United States. But in terms of this enormous focus on targeting students and professors and academics and propaganda and so forth, uh, the only one I've ever seen is Israel. David? Congress just passed a four-month extension for Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And that allows the NSA to collect online information from non-U.S. citizens who are also communicating with U.S. citizens. How much of that is used to, to spy on college students and ordinary Americans who are traveling throughout the Middle East? Well, that's sort of the loophole for NSA. Uh, you're not allowed to spy on an American citizen without a, a warrant from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, the secret court known as the FISA court. The exception is if you're communicating overseas with a foreign person. And that just opens up an enormous door for uh, students speaking to other students or, or, or whatever. They have access to that, and that's, a, that's certainly a problem. I don't have access to what NSA is doing internally at this point, but that was one of the criticisms of this new law, that it didn't take away the NSA's ability to eavesdrop on, on Americans who were communicating overseas to somebody else. And then that information could go into this sort of big computerized file, basically. And the problem was in the, in the past, the FBI would go in there without any kind of real authority or any kind of real reason. They could just go in there and look for names and uh, I think the newer legislation puts some more restrictions so they can't just go in there willy-nilly to look at whoever they mm -hmm. want to. Anna? I want to circle back to 
the nonprofit industrial complex of it all. A lot of nonprofits in this country are used to launder money for mega billionaires to hide their wealth. And what I find fascinating and enraging about the section of your Canary Mission article that discusses the the nonprofits that help donors get tax exemptions for donating to it. The kind of double-edged sword of it is that if you register as a nonprofit, as a tax-exempt organization in the U.S., you have to file forms with the IRS to maintain your exemption. You have to file a 990 every year with a bunch of information. Is there an opening there to get more information about their activities and who's involved and perhaps start chipping away at their activities since they open themselves up to IRS scrutiny? It's still difficult. I am not a tax expert here, so I don't really, I can't give you the, the intimate details of how that works. But for example, I mentioned this $100,000 that went to Canary Mission from Sanford Diller, billionaire in California. That normally would have been hidden. Nobody would have known about that, but there was a mistake that was made on his tax form. That's the only reason anybody was able to trace that money back to Diller. In Los Angeles, for example, somebody donated $25 million to this organization, and nobody knows who it is because of the secrecy laws with the way it works with donating money to these charities. But as you mentioned, yeah, the problem is that these Israelis from basically were settlers and they came to New York and then they started this thing called the Central Fund for Israel to act as basically a front for uh, people donating money. And that's why these groups, whether it be that 25 million in California or the 100,000 from Stanford Diller, would first go to this group. And all they do is transship it. They just get it in and then they send it off to Israel. But by doing that, these people get a significant tax advantage, which is why they're doing it that way. And what that means is that your um, our taxes are subsidizing these organizations, these Canary Mission and everything, because uh, the people who are funding them are getting tax rebates. So that's another sort of slap in the face of that. One thing also that I didn't mention, I should have mentioned before, another aspect is the Israeli government had basically been running a troll farm in the United States. And what they did was uh, there was this troll farm set up in Israel, and then they got thousands of Americans, supporters in America, that would sign on to this app, which made them part of this troll farm. And what happened is that the Israeli intelligence would tell the uh, people running the troll farm in Israel what to send on these apps. So if somebody in Boston, for example, there was a church in Boston that had showed a video that Israel didn't like. So they told these trolls, the people that had these apps, to attack them. And then they're supposed to attack them with all kinds of messages and emails and so forth without showing that they have any link to Israel. And again, that's another thing that shows this covert connection between Israel and Americans, Americans using this, Americans doing the bidding of what the Israeli intelligence is asking them to do. Time now for In Case You Haven't Heard with Francesco DeSantis. 
On Tuesday, Senator Bernie Sanders forced a vote on Section 502B of the Foreign Assistance Act, which, if passed, could have resulted in the United States cutting off military aid to Israel, the Intercept reports. While this attempt failed by a wide margin, 72 to 11, it did win the support of Senators LaFonza Butler of California, Martin Heinrich of New Mexico, Maisie Arona of Hawaii, Ben Ray Lujan of New Mexico, Ed Markey and Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, Jeff Merkley of Oregon, Chris Van Hollen of Maryland, Peter Welch of Vermont, along with Rand Paul, the lone Republican to back the effort. However, as Andrew O'Neill, policy director for Indivisible, put it, quote, it's frankly historic that this vote took place at all. The number of senators willing to take a vote like this even weeks ago, on the face of it, would have been zero. 384 leaders from around the globe, led by Representative Ilhan Omar and German politician Sabim Dagdalen, have signed a letter calling for, quote, an immediate multilateral ceasefire in Israel and Palestine, the release of all the remaining Israeli and international hostages, and the facilitation of humanitarian aid entry into Gaza, end quote, per The Guardian. The letter continues, quote, We further urge our own respective governments and the international community to uphold international law and seek accountability for grave violations of human rights, end quote. Further American signatories include Reps Jamal Bauman, Cory Bush, Andre Carson, Greg Kesar, Trey Garcia, Hank Johnson, Summer Lee, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Adam Presley, Nydia Velasquez, and Bonnie Watts-Holman, who are joined by British progressive icon Jeremy Corbyn and politicians from Austria, Belgium, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Brazil, Canada, Chile, Colombia, Cyprus, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, Ghana, Iceland, Ireland, Italy, Luxembourg, Mexico, the Netherlands, Norway, Peru, Portugal, Slovenia, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, and Turkey. Congresswomen Rashida Tlaib and Cori Bush have issued a statement of support for South Africa's case against Israel at the International Court of Justice. The representatives write, quote, We unequivocally join world leaders and international human rights organizations in support of South Africa's case before the International Court of Justice, alleging Israel violated the Genocide Convention. There must be an end to the violence, and there must be accountability for the blatant human rights abuses and mass atrocities occurring in the region. The historical significance of the post-apartheid state filing this case must not be lost, and the moral weight of their prerogative cannot be dismissed. The United States has a devastating role in the ongoing violence in Gaza, where already 23,000 Palestinians have been killed, more than 59,000 injured, and millions have been displaced. We must refuse to be silent, as the majority of the world is calling for an end to the violence, mass human suffering, and the need for accountability. As one of the countries that has agreed to the Genocide Convention, the U.S. must stop trying to discredit and undermine this case and the international legal system it claims to support. Our commitment to protecting the human rights of all people must be unconditional. The best time to make a conclusive determination on genocide is when there is still time to stop it, not after. We will continue pushing for a lasting ceasefire, full accountability, and a just and lasting peace forever. The South African attorney, Wikis van Rensburg, has formally delivered a letter to the leadership of the United States outlining that his firm, quote, intends to bring legal proceedings against the U.S. government based on overwhelming evidence that it has, it is, feeding, abetting and supporting, encouraging, providing material assistance and means to Israeli defense forces, enabling crimes against the Palestinian people. Legal advocates like Ralph Nader and Bruce Fine have long sounded the alarm that American support for Israel's actions in Gaza are a breach of international law, it remains to be seen whether the U.S. will stand trial at the Hague for their support of this genocidal campaign. This is from Al-Mayadeen. Al-Mayadeen also reports, quote, 
In a rare show of dissent, U.S. federal employees from nearly 22 agencies are planning a walkout to protest the Biden administration's handling of the war on Gaza, end quote. This report attributes organization of this walkout to a group called Feds United for Peace, and the walkout is, quote, expected to draw participants from key agencies, including the Executive Office of the President, the National Security Agency, and the Departments of State, Defense, Homeland Security, and Veterans Affairs along with the Food and Drug Administration, the National Park Service, the Federal Aviation Administration, and the Environmental Protection Agency, end quote. Axios reports that congressional Republicans are planning to retaliate against these workers exercising their free speech rights, with Speaker Johnson saying, quote, any government worker who walked off the job to protest U.S. support for our ally Israel is ignoring their responsibility and abusing the trust of taxpayers. They deserve to be fired. The Intercept published an interview with teenage Israelis who are refusing conscription into the IDF. These young refusniks, almost all a part of the group Mesavot, Hebrew for We Refuse, have been resisting conscription since the large-scale protests against the Netanyahu government last year, when over 230 of them signed a letter stating, quote, The dictatorship that has existed for decades in the territories is now seeping into Israel and against us. This trend did not start now. It is inherent to the regime of occupation and Jewish supremacy. The masks are simply coming off. End quote. However, these courageous young people are facing an increasingly hostile environment in Israel due to their refusal to serve. We offer them our solidarity. In a massive blow to journalism, the Baltimore Sun has been sold to David Smith, the Baltimore Banner reports. Smith serves as executive chairman of Sinclair Inc., which owns more than 200 television stations nationwide, and has been criticized for pushing uniform right-wing narratives through these channels. In addition to The Sun, Smith purchased its affiliated papers, including, quote, the Capitol and Maryland Gazette newspapers in Annapolis, the Carroll County Times, the Howard County Times, and the Towson Times. The Lever has dropped a stunning report on, quote, how Boeing fought Washington, end quote, which lays out the influence network the embattled airline has cultivated in the Beltway. Top-line numbers alone are eye-popping, with Boeing and Spirit Aerosystems spending over $65 million on lobbying and campaign donations over just four years. More insidious, however, is what they got for this money, namely, safety waivers enabling them to keep unsafe planes in the sky. This report also touches on the case of Republican Congressman Ron Estes of Kansas, a top recipient of this campaign cash, who pressured the FAA to reinstate the 737 MAX, and Senator Marie Cantwell, Democrat of Washington, who received nearly $200,000 from the company and then dutifully, quote, pushed through legislation to exempt Boeing's 737 MAX from a looming safety deadline that would have required changes to their alerting systems, despite concerns from the families of passengers who died in the 2018 and 2019 crashes. Josh Idelson, labor reporter at Bloomberg, is out with two major updates on the United Auto Workers' new campaigns. One, Bloomberg reports the union has, quote, signed up more than 30% of workers at a Mercedes plant in Alabama after hitting the same milestone last month at Volkswagen in Tennessee, end quote, illustrating the durability and success of their union drives Ford-owned auto plants in the U.S. And two, Bloomberg reports that, quote, Tesla is boosting pay for all U.S. production associates, the latest bump by a non-union automaker following the UAW's big Detroit wins, end quote. Taken together, one gets the impression that auto workers are organized, on the march, and have momentum behind them. Finally, in Guatemala, Bernardo Arevalo of the Sumia party has finally been sworn in as the president of that country, 
beating back multiple attempts by the corrupt ruling elites to undermine his ascension down to the moment of his inauguration. Reuters reports, quote, Arevalo's inauguration was thrown into disarray after the Supreme Court allowed opposition lawmakers to maintain their leadership in Congress and forced members of the president's senior party to stand as independents, sparking wrangling in Congress, with supporters of Arevalo threatening to storm the building as police and riot gear amassed the streets, end quote. Arevalo managed to weather the storm, however, in part because he was aided by other countries' leadership. USAID Administrator Samantha Power, opposing the power grab, tweeted, quote, There is no question that Bernardo Arevalo was the president of Guatemala. We call on all sides to remain calm and for the Guatemalan Congress to uphold the will of the people. The world watch it. Quote, Meanwhile, presidents and foreign ministers present at the inauguration released a statement forcefully avowing, quote, the will of the Guatemalan people must be respected, quote. Progressive International's David Adler reports. Renowned investigative journalist Alan Nairn added, quote, what is clear is that even if Arevalo succeeds in taking power as president, he will be governing under siege. This has been Francesco DeSantis with In Case You Haven't Heard. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour when we welcome Stephanie Fox of Jewish Voice for Peace. Until next time. Stand up, stand up.